If you were to die today, and you were brought up to the judgment seat of God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? There's a passage in the Bible where Jesus talks about the day of judgment um, in Matthew chapter 7. And he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So here's what not to say. Uh, I prophesied in your name. I I, I cast out demons in your name. I did many mighty works in your name. I did all these things. If you're ever asked why you should be allowed into heaven, your answer should not be one of, I was good, or I did these works. I did these good deeds. I did more good than I did bad. If that's the answer you come up with, you can expect Jesus to say, I never knew you. It's not about good works. It's not about your good works. My favorite passage in the Bible is in Ephesians 2. And verses 8 and 9 say, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Catch that last part again. So that no one may boast. Why should I let you into heaven? Well, because I did this and, and this and this and this and this. No, that would be boasting. We'd be boasting in our works when it's not even a result of our works. It is a gift of God. Being allowed into heaven depends on God. Ultimately, it's his choice whether he lets you in or not. So let's ask this question, who is God going to allow into heaven? Or, or, or maybe a better question to start with, who is he not going to allow into heaven? Let's start in, in Eden, God's perfect garden. In the beginning, he created the world. On the sixth day, he created man. And then in Genesis 2 verse 8, we're told that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So the man, Adam, was placed in the garden, which was this, this paradise, this place where God was with man, as it later talks about him walking there. Everything was good. It was, it was fine. It was perfect. And Adam himself was perfect. At the end of the sixth day, after God created everything, including man, God saw everything that he had made, and behold... It was very good, which means man was very good. Man had nothing against him. Man was blameless. Man was perfect in the sense that he had no sin. He hadn't done what was wrong in God's eyes. And as far as we know, there was really only one thing that he could do wrong. 
And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So as far as we can see in Genesis 2, Adam was given one command. You shall not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If Adam were to eat of it, there would be death. He would die that, that day, right? In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we keep going in the life of Adam. God creates woman from one of Adam's ribs. She's Eve. Uh, she meets Satan as a serpent who assures her that she won't die if she eats from the forbidden tree. Also letting her know kind of how the tree got its name, right? She'll be like God in having the knowledge of good and evil. So she eats its fruit. She gives some to Adam. And he disobeys the command of the Lord. He ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And with that came death. Now, Adam still lived to be 930 years old, which is older than anyone nowadays. He still lived a long time, a really long time. Uh, but as it says here, there was still death that day he ate the fruit. It wasn't a physical death, though that would still be a consequence. Man would return to dust as he was created from the dust. But it was a spiritual death that happened right away. Adam would be cut off from the presence of God because of his sin against him. Both he and Eve would be driven from the garden. And while for Adam himself it wasn't an instance of God saying, I never knew you, it was an instance of God depart from me. If we were to ask again, who is God going to allow into heaven? Or, or better yet, who is God not going to allow into heaven? One thing to note is that something God won't allow into heaven is sin, and so someone God won't allow into heaven is someone who has sin. And after eating the fruit, uh, disobeying God, sinning against God, that was Adam, a sinner no longer allowed to continue living in the presence of God. But the thing about sin is that it's hereditary. It was such a part of Adam that it passed down to every one of his descendants. And since he was the first man, that means we are all his descendants. And that means we are all Sinners, We have all sinned. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which would mean we'd also be in that same category of those who God is not going to allow into heaven. We all fall short of his glory, even if you're someone who has prophesied in Jesus' name, even if you've cast demons 
out of people and done many mighty works, you've still sinned. Your mighty works are not going to clear your name, no matter how great they are, no matter how numerous. You've already fallen short of God's glory. You've already sinned. And as we read later on in Romans, the wages of sin is death. The payment that we owe for sin is death. And like Adam, it's not simply a physical death, but also a spiritual death, one that has us separate from God. And so if we die and there's no acceptance into heaven for us, then there's hell. We're separated from God forever. And so if we now ask the question, who is God going to allow into heaven? It looks like the answer is nobody. Everyone's sin. Everyone is guilty. Nobody deserves to go to heaven. And one thing to know about God is that God is just, right? He's not going to hold back on giving people the punishment they earned because of their sin. He's just. He is going to follow through. He will not go back on his punishment. Sins have to be paid for. And the wages of sin is death. Our sins have to be paid with death. We pay for them by dying. Physically and spiritually. But there's something to point out here. So, because of what happened in the garden, there are consequences for man. Uh, there are consequences for woman. But there are also consequences for the serpent. Satan. In Genesis 3, we read that the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So, okay, not, that's not too much that, that we learned there. Uh, uh, snakes possibly had legs before this time. But then God continued saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So from Eve on, there will be this rivalry between her offspring and Satan's offspring. And you can think about Satan as our adversary, right, and how we are all the offspring of a woman, but we're also all the offspring of a man. So there's a specific person here that this passage is talking about, and he shall bruise or, or, or crush the head of the serpent Satan. He will be victorious over him, but Satan will still get his strike in there, right? He will still bruise his heel. He will hurt him. It's not an easy battle. So this is a prophecy. This is talking about someone who would come later, someone who would come later to defeat Satan. Another prophecy about this person, this time from the prophet Zechariah, tells us this. 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. So this person is going to be king. Here it is told to Jerusalem that it is their king that's coming to them. As someone who is righteous, which is something that we who, who fall short of God's glory are not. We're not righteous. So there's something different about this person. Why is he different? He was born of a virgin. He is the ultimate seed of the woman, the ultimate fulfillment to the prophecy because he's not the offspring of man, but he is the offspring of a woman. A virgin. Mary. He doesn't inherit what all the offspring of man, of, of Adam, inherit. He doesn't inherit sin. And the other thing that helps is that he's God. Colossians 2 verse 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. He was fully human, but he was also fully God. God in human form. And actually, even to say human form is a little bit off, because he was a human, right? He didn't just appear to be a human because of his form. He was a human. He grew up like we did from infant to toddler to kid and then so on. Um, he had flesh like us, a body like us. He was tempted like we are. He was a human. Just one who was born of a virgin and one who was God. Jesus Christ. Now, when we look again at Zechariah's prophecy, it says, having salvation is he. He has salvation. Jerusalem, your king is coming, and he has salvation. He is righteous, and he has salvation. It also says he's humble. This is not the grand entry of Aladdin. <laughs> this is someone who comes into the city on a donkey and the cult that was with her. But his entry into Jerusalem fulfills the prophecy. Their righteous king has come humbly, mounted on a donkey and on a colt. And he has salvation. And there's a large crowd that comes out of Jerusalem that seems to know this. Uh, John says this, So they took branches of palm trees and, <clears throat> and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The word Hosanna uh, pretty much means save us, but here, how it's used, it's more like exclaiming salvation, right? In a way where it says salvation has come. The Savior is here. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew's account says, and when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet, Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And things seem great. Things seem good. Um, 
there's lots of excitement over this Jesus. Uh, they had heard he had raised Lazarus from the dead. Uh, there were shouts of praise and joy and of salvation. Hosanna. Uh, the promised king has come to Jerusalem. But this time he hadn't come to reign. In a matter of days, the religious leaders of the city plot together to kill Jesus. Uh, Judas, one of his disciples, uh, seeks an opportunity to betray him. Jesus, with his disciples, has the Last Supper, and then they go to Gethsemane, where he's arrested by a group led by his betrayer, Judas. After being sent around to different authorities, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, has the final say, but he finds nothing wrong with Jesus. But the religious leaders and the Jewish people um, are, are accusing him of, of, of many things like blasphemy and stirring people up, and they are continually demanding he be punished. So starting from Matthew uh, 27, verse 15, it says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered... Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now, the chief priests and the elders, so the, the religious leaders, persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of these two do you want me to release to you, or for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should, all, what, what, what should I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. And so after being scourged, Jesus was crucified. One of the most painful deaths there is that, that lasts for hours, right? Here was the perfect, most innocent person of all time, sentenced to a punishment. He didn't deserve. I remember when I was younger thinking, oh man, if it wasn't for those Pharisees persuading the crowd, Jesus could have lived. Pilate would have released him. And I thought it was such a tragedy that this whole situation, it could have been avoided. Kind of like Romeo and Juliet. Oh, oh man, this whole situation could have been avoided, right? But unlike that, Jesus' death was always part of the plan. Earlier on, Jesus basically says to his disciples, See, we're going up to Jerusalem. They're going to mock me, spit on me, flog me, and, and kill me. But the disciples didn't understand then. Uh, it was hidden from them. 
But Jesus knew it was going to happen. He knew that's what had to happen. You see, we talk about God being just. There has to be punishment for sin. God will not let sin go unpunished. There needs to be justice. But while God is just, he is also loving. Deeply, deeply loving. So loving, in fact, that he, the creator of all that exists, stooped down to become a human being, living a life of humility and servanthood that would ultimately end in taking the penalty for our sin, all of our sin, by dying on the cross. Romans 5.18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Adam's sin brought death to all mankind, but Jesus contrasts that by bringing mankind life. His death was not meant to be avoided. And honestly, it's the greatest act of love in human history. The greatest act of love that there's ever been. Think of it, like, like just personally, think of all that you've done. Think of you at your worst. The worst things you've ever done or that you've ever thought even because God knows it all. He knows you at your worst. There's a lot of things that we think in our heads but never say out loud, right? Because they're hurtful or bad or secret. God knows it all. He knows the future. He knows the past. He's not bound by time. So he knew you from way back then, knew every bad thing you do and will do, knew every thought and motive of your heart, knew the deepest, darkest parts of you, and he still died one of the most painful deaths for you. That shows you that yes, He loves you. He deeply, deeply loves you. Let's look again at Ephesians uh, 2, verse 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So let's talk about gifts, um, because normally we like receiving gifts. Um, I know that's not always the case. Sometimes uh, gifts are not what you wanted. The gift you get is not what you wanted. Perhaps it's something you already have, or it's something that you just find will take up space and not be useful. But generally, gifts are things that people want to receive. Um, gifts, though, can also be rejected, right? I remember a few years back when my friends had her ex buy her a necklace in order to try and work things out. Uh, that gift was rejected. Uh, gifts get rejected. Gifts also get accepted. And here in this passage, it's talking about being saved. So specifically, being saved from hell, saved from sin's eternal consequences, being saved is not your own doing. You don't save yourself. It's a gift from God. Let's look back at Romans 6.23, but this time, this time we'll finish the verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation, being saved from hell and allowed to have eternal life in heaven, that's a free gift. That gift was already paid for by Jesus when he died on the cross. It's free for us. But are we going to accept that gift or reject it? If we go back to that question, who is God going to allow into heaven? The answer is those who accept that gift. Who is God not going to allow into heaven? Those who reject that gift. So how does one accept or reject the gift of eternal life? Well, it says here, for by grace you have been saved through faith. So if you have been saved, it's been by God's grace. God has been gracious towards you. But why? Faith. You're saved. You've been saved by God's grace through faith. Through putting your trust in what is unseen. And that doesn't mean believing everything you don't see, right? But it means that even though you haven't physically seen God, you haven't physically seen Jesus or his death on the cross or that he rose again, uh, even though you haven't physically seen something that lets you know you've been granted eternal life, you still believe it. You still believe those things. You trust that Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection were sufficient to make that way for you to be forgiven of your sins, to be justified in the eyes of God, to be given access to eternal life in God's heavenly presence. You trust that because you believe in Jesus and what he's done, he will bring you to eternal life. And because you trust, your faith is in those things. God will be gracious to you. He will save you from hell, allow you into heaven, forgive you of the sin you were guilty of because Jesus took your punishment. You accept God's gift through your faith. So I don't know if God will ask us the question, why should I let you into heaven? Uh, he already knows your heart. He already knows where you stand with him. He already knows whether you've accepted his free gift or not. He doesn't need to ask you that question. But let's say he still does. Uh, the answer is not because I've done these works, because I've prophesied or casted out demons, or I've almost never missed church on Sunday, or I helped out the homeless this many times. That's not the answer. The answer would be, because I know Jesus. I was a sinner. I did wrong. I didn't deserve to make it here. But Jesus paid the price for me to be here, and I trusted him with my life. I don't know if God will ask us that question. God knows where we've placed our trust, where we've placed our faith. He knows if 
we just think Jesus was a real person and are not truly repentant. Um, he knows if our trust isn't truly in Jesus. He knows if we've just claimed to have faith so we can still sin as much as we want and, and feel forgiven. And I've said this before, if you choose to believe in Jesus just to be saved so you can still sin all you want, I don't think that you really understand what Christ has done for you. At that point, it's not really faith. It's just like an insurance policy put in place just in case things go wrong. And what a shame that is to use Jesus' death as an excuse to do what grieves him. That is not faith. True faith requires repentance. It requires the decision to turn away from sin and to instead follow Jesus. And I know that we still have the flesh and we still sin. And it's hard. It's hard. We still mess up. But if we have made that decision and put our faith in Jesus, He is our perfection. He, he, he is our righteousness. And what an encouragement that is that we don't have to rely on ourselves when we have Christ to rely on. We don't have to rely on good works. And they're very good, right? We should still be doing good works, but not in order to be saved. Instead, we should be doing them because we have been saved, because we have been given eternal life, because in doing them, we serve the Lord, the one who came down from heaven to die for us. Because even though Adam messed up, even though we mess up, he still loved us enough to go to the cross. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I know this week draws so much attention to what Jesus did for us, but I hope that now and throughout the rest of the year, we never forget his sacrifice and what it means to us. Because as bleak and hopeless as things seemed when Adam brought sin and death into the world to, to all of us, we have a God who became human and took upon himself our sin and our penalty so that we could have life. Bow with me in prayer. God, you are so good uh, in every way, and I thank you again for all that you've done. I know this week draws so much attention to what you did, and I pray that you would use that, God. I pray that people would recognize that, and that they would be remembering that, and honoring you because of that, and that people would be finding out about your gospel still, even through this time where there's not that much uh, physical, personal interaction with people who are in a close distance to each other. Um, I just pray, Lord, that there would still be a spread of the gospel in this week, in this time. But God, I just pray that it wouldn't end there because your death and resurrection are, are, are so important, God. They should be always remembered. And I just pray that you would help us to remember that, to live our lives accordingly, um, 
especially as those who have been rescued, as those who have put our faith in you, Jesus, that we would definitely, Lord, be remembering of what you did, be acting accordingly, and showing love to others, just like you showed love to us. That should be our lives. And so I thank you, God. You are so good. Um, and I just pray that you would go with us as we continue on with our lives of you and what you did and giving us that hunger and thirst um, to seek you more and, and yeah, to praise you and thank you. Um, you're so good to us. I pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.